The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. We all have a voice. Use yours. Call 021-446-0567. Join the conversation on Cape Talk. Welcome to The Money Show. You can give us a call on 011-883-0702. You can tweet us, X us, contact us, anything you want to do to us. There is no fuss at all. Well, there's not much fuss. That's a better way of doing it. WhatsApps are probably the easiest. Voice notes on 072-702-1702. Welcome to The Money Show. It is brought to you by ABSA CIB, winner of the best research house at the JSE Spire Awards. It's done that for six years in a row. It proudly brings you The Money Show. ABSA is a registered FSP. Uh, unlike Livestock Wealth, unfortunately, Livestock Wealth, which arrived on the scene probably five or six years ago with a huge bang. And I see today the Financial Sector Conduct Authority is warning members of the public against livestock wealth. The entity is unauthorized to offer investment advice or services to those looking to get into investing in livestock or agricultural products. Now, what strikes me as weird about this is that livestock wealth has got a huge profile. It has been around for at least seven years. Uh, No, more than that, nine years. And it has got 100 million rand invested in it. It's got investors over five continents. This is from the Livestock Wealth website. It's globally recognized for innovation. It's been featured on global news channels. Um, If the Financial Sector Conduct Authority was unaware of Livestock Wealth up until now, then it's not been paying attention. I do look at the Livestock Wealth website this evening and see that it is a registered, um, it is a, it is registered not with the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, but it is certainly registered with other entities. Uh, it says it is registered on the National Credit Regulator. It's got an agricultural producer agent, but it's not with the National Credit Regulator. Why is it that the National, uh, no, I beg your pardon, with the Financial Sector Conduct Authority? Why is it that they're only launching an, an inquiry now? I wonder. This, this is Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Join the conversation with Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. Okay, let's get to Susan Comrie this evening. If you've got an experience, by the way, with livestock wealth, and it's a wonderful idea that you can do farming without doing farming, if you know what I mean. You can be a city slicker, you can have your city life, you can have your city job, you can have your city ways, you can wear your city shoes, you can drive your city golf. Um, You can do all of those sorts of things without ever having to get manure between your boots. Yes, now what are treads, your boot treads or anything like that, and you don't have to worry about the farming day-to-day stuff. It was a wonderful idea, but the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, nine years into the founding of Livestock Wealth, is now warning and signing alarm bells. It's... I, I, find the timing very very odd uh, we're, we're trying to contact people this evening uh, the wonderful thing about being a South African journalist this is a new topic by the way is that you develop a sense of smelling rats before their presence is absolutely obvious uh, you spot things that are suspicious and alarm bells rang the moment Petro SA announced it was appointing a company called Equator Holdings run by political operator Lawrence Mulawudzi to finance the exploration of its offshore gas reserves and to build critical gas infrastructure if his name rings a bell very distant belt, a little tinkle in the distance. It's because he appeared in very unflattering terms in the Impati Commission report into the PIC. Not once, not twice, one, two, three, two, three, 
Can't count that fast, but I'm told 176 times. Susan Comrie is amongst the best in South Africa at smelling a rat long before anybody else does and has been doing a deep dive into Mr. Mulawutsi and the deal with uh, Petro SA. And I wonder, Susan, what is it that got you so curious up front? Hi, Bruce. Um, well, you know, it, it is one of those things where Mr. Mr. Mulawutsi has kind of crossed my path before. Um, you know, years and years ago, around 2016, uh, there were a number of investigations that I'd done around those PIC-funded deals. Now, for people who don't really recall the details, uh, Mr. Muller, he had two PIC-funded deals totaling around 3.2 billion rand. Um, at least one of those deals has gone spectacularly south for the PIC. And remember that that means for, for government pensioners as well, his money, essentially, the PIC is investing. Um, so he was a character that we knew well from the Impaji Commission. You know, he testified um, throughout the commission. Um, he kind of, you know, was quite sort of frank about how he had made these payments um, on, on Dr. Dan Majila's request uh, because he felt, you know, Majila had sort of helped to fund his deals and so he kind of owed him. So a very controversial character, um, a regular appearance, in the kind of society celeb gossip news and not the kind of person you would have thought would have been handpicked uh, by Petros A to to lead this massively important um, or at least to participate in this massively important uh, gas deal. And, and here's, the, here's the thing, Susan. I mean, it, it's a really weird uh, turn of events because we've also got the uh, we also got Petro SA in December announcing that they'd secured a 3.8 billion rand deal um, with Petro SA, Gazprom Bank. They did this in December. Then they went out and publicly defended Gazprom Bank. What's the connection between Mr. Mulauzi and Gazprom Bank and Petro SA? There's sort of this triangular uh, series of connections, it would seem. Sure. I mean, so these, uh, essentially what happened was Petro SA put out three uh, RFPs at the beginning of last year, and they all revolved around different components of their gas assets. Now, one of those contracts, um, as you said, w- went controversially to Gazprom Bank. That's to refurbish the liquids portion of the, the gas to liquids refinery. But then sort of quietly in the background, uh, you know, Petro SA had held this press conference, they'd announced this to journalists, they defended the deal, and then they said, look, there's, there's other contracts as well, but uh, we're still busy finalizing those. What we established was that later the same day, they signed this very controversial agreement with Mr. Mulawudzi's company, Equator Holdings. And essentially, um, what, what's kind of happened is he initially comes in, he initially wins a, a contract to fund Petrosa, to go out and find them the money for this, you know, could be a as much as $1.2 billion that they, they need for this project. And then his mandate morphs, and suddenly he becomes not just the guy who's going to fund the deal, he becomes the guy who's going to execute the deal. And he's a very technical project. Uh, yeah. Uh, is there sufficient concern here for official circumspection around these relationships? Or is it just you as a pesky, a pesky reporter making life uncomfortable for officials at this stage? Because that's usually how these stories start out before they start getting public attention. Sure. I mean, look, I think, um, you know, what we did is we went back and looked at the criteria that Petro say themselves had set. 
And a lot of our story is kind of pointing out how at each turn it's very questionable how uh, Equator sort of met the criteria, how they sort of advanced in these tenders, how they got selected. I'll give you an example. You know, initially, the tender that uh, Mr. Malawadzi bids for says that as an elimination criteria, so if you don't meet the bar, you're out. They say, we only want established players or financial institutions. Now, by all accounts, Equator Holdings is not that. There's another contract that he bids for at the same time at PetroSA, and PetroSA, from what we've seen, give him zero out of 100 in, in the bid evaluations because they say we can't establish basic facts about this company. Now, lo and behold, they decide, well, you know, somehow this guy meets the, the criteria of being an established player or, mm-hmm. or a financial institution capable of raising the kind of money that they need. So, I mean, to answer your question, what we've done is really go and uh, sort of put questions to PetroSA based on their own criteria, their own documents, their own agreements that they find. Oh, dare you. It points out to them <laughs> where it falls woefully short. Suzanne Comrie using the public sector evidence and uh, challenging it and doing it very effectively. Very good piece on daily on uh, with Amo Bungani. And, of course, uh, that story is available online. Um, the curious case of Mr. Maluzzi and the deal with uh, and the connections with Gazprom Bank and, of course, Petro SA. My producers tell me that we will have the Financial Sector Conduct Authority hot live and steaming for you at 20 to 7 this evening in response to its warning today that uh, you should be cautious in dealing with livestock wealth a company that's been around for nine years the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the best research house at the jse spy awards for the sixth year running absa cib absa is a registered fsp Well, good news, inflation is coming down. The bad news, not by nearly enough to get the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates tomorrow and possibly not meaningfully cut interest rates this year. The average inflation rate for 2023 slowed down to 6%. That's lower than the average inflation rate in 2022 at 6.9%. Now, what averages matter? Well, let's find out from Isaac Macejo, who is the economist at Nedbank. Why do we care about this average inflation number over a 12-month period, Isaac? Good evening, Bruce. I remember that, uh, you know, uh, we were shocked in 2022, shocked in the fact that uh, inflation increased uh, quite sharply to 6.9%, and that was primarily... Uh, due to the effects of the Russia-Ukraine war. And uh, at the start of uh, that year, I remember, that was before the war started on the 24th of Feb, you know, we were expecting inflation uh, to be uh, comfortably within the 3 to 6% uh, range, uh, very close to the bank's uh, target of 4.5%. So we are quite encouraged that, uh, you know, the effects of uh, you know, the uh, Russia-Ukraine war through higher food prices and also uh, fuel prices have sort of dissipated and they have helped to bring our inflation lower. 
So here we've got a situation where the Reserve Bank governor has made it absolutely clear. He was speaking to Bloomberg in Davos last week, or was it the week before? I think it was last week. The time is moving fast. He said until he can anchor inflation around that 4.5%, which is the midpoint of the inflation target range, he's in no, meet, no mood to cut interest rates. And I wonder, based on the fact that inflation is coming down far more slowly than it traditionally does in the face of rapidly rising interest rates, whether there's a possibility that we might not see an interest rate cut at all this year? Well, Bruce, uh, I still expect uh, that we are going to see interest rate cuts in the second half of uh, this year. Uh, but with inflation falling slowly uh, and also inflation expectations remaining sticky, uh, it simply means that uh, the Reserve Bank uh, is going to remain a bit hawkish, i.e. continuing to beat the war drums uh, in the MPG statements, uh, but signaling that, uh, you know, uh, we're not likely to hike further uh, during uh, the cycle because looking at uh, the global environment, inflation is falling. Uh, all the major central banks have already hinted at uh, interest rate cuts uh, during uh, this year, um, most likely the second half. Uh, so I do believe that uh, you know there will be room to cut interest rates in the second half. Isaac Matsako, thank you very much indeed. Isaac is economist at Nedbank. I mean, there are plenty of critics of the South African Reserve Bank who said we should not have had the interest rate hikes that we've had. All it has done is you know, sort of adding insult to injury um, because we've got a huge inflation problem. We've then got uh, people losing their jobs during COVID. And then we start rising, raising interest rates to try to quell inflation, which is not being driven by consumption, but by constraints in the global economy, whether it be because of the wars in Ukraine and in Gaza, whether it be uh, because of supply chain issues with uh, the container ships being blockaded through the Red Sea and whether container ships all piled up in uh, California and then had to be redistributed around the world over time. And that caused big blockages. There's no way that that um, could be fought by, uh, by, by rising interest rates. And the Reserve Bank has been adamant, saying, no, hold on a second, there's so many own goals in the South African environment where failed electricity means the cost of producing anything has gone through the roof, energy costs have gone up. All of these factors, and the only way you can beat down inflation is with higher interest rates. And they've stuck to their guns. And you've only got to look at Turkey, which is getting increasingly worried that it can't keep raising interest rates, and it's done so aggressively recently and its inflation is not coming down even the bank of canada a eh, um is saying that it's going to keep interest rates on hold because inflation remains above the target range inflation is above the target range in most parts of the world right now and most central bankers are really apprehensive about the prospect of cutting interest rates do you want to bet on cutting interest rates well you don't need to listen to me on it. We'll get Chris Stewart to deliver a comment on interest rates coming up in a moment here on The Money Show. The Money Show. The Markets. But first, Chris Stewart, who is a portfolio manager at 91, um, let's talk about China. Let's talk about the stimulus that they're introducing. Let's talk about this renewed surge of optimism that we've seen take hold of our market over the last two days. Another nearly 1,000 point gain today on top of yesterday's. I'm feeling quite dizzy with excitement and anticipation for tomorrow. 
Yeah, good evening, Bruce. Uh, I wouldn't get too carried away, but we did see uh, some monetary stimulus coming out of uh, China today, announcing that they would reduce the required reserve ratio for banks, effectively putting uh, more liquidity into the system. Now, we you know, know that the Chinese and, in fact, the rest of the world are concerned about the parlous state of the Chinese economy, uh, and many of the uh, attempts that they've had to stimulate have, have simply not uh, not worked, and I think the the uh, malaise in the in the Chinese property market's got a lot to do with that. We've seen uh, attempts to stimulate uh, in terms of a sort of commentary around direct participation in the equity market to try and get the equity market going, uh, and now we're seeing signs uh, of monetary accommodation. It's it's worked for today. Uh, it remains to see be seen how long it can work for, <laughs> uh, but the mood is somewhat better today. Uh, and I guess, you know, let's let's be thankful for small mercies. Enjoy it when it goes up. Uh, otherwise, what do we do when it goes down? Exactly. One can't be too, one becomes very depressed about these things. Um, not too many trading updates today. Yesterday was a flurry of trading updates, but the Fushini group came out and told us what we knew, um, that Black Friday last year was a damp squib. And it turns out the whole of the last quarter of last year, I think across most retailers, was a pretty awful time. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly tough. Um, you know, sales under pressure. Uh, if you look at uh, sort of the implied like-for-like uh, volumes, in other words, stripping out the impact of, of uh, greater trading space and, and the impact of inflation, uh, like-for-like volumes remain solidly negative. If you look at the mix of credit versus cash sales, you can see that the retailers have been pulling up the handbrake in terms of uh, offering clients uh, credit with acceptance ratio for credit applications sitting below 20%, uh, which is really a function of the financial uh, condition of the average consumer in South Africa and the ability to take on more credit. So all of that has manifest in uh, some fairly uh, soft numbers from a turnover perspective, uh, add to the fact that they were lapping bases in their Australian uh, and UK businesses, uh, which you know, in the 12 months previously had been buoyed by a post-COVID recovery. Uh, all of that, you know, conspired to produce fairly unexciting top line, but there was enough in there uh, to provide enough cheer to the market to get the share going. Uh, perhaps expectations were just so beaten up uh, that not a terrible outcome was seen as quite good. Uh, but there were some items, you know, if you look into the detail of that trading update, uh, December was materially better uh, than the prior few months, uh, and maybe that's because, uh, you know, November uh, and Black Friday spending, we've always wondered in the past how much of, you know, a bumper November and a bumper Black Friday period is simply bringing forward uh, December consumption into November. Uh, Black Friday last year was pretty disappointing. November retail sales were pretty disappointing. Uh, so the fact that December looked uh, significantly better uh, was good. And some points made from uh, the Fashini group around uh, margins and discounting. And it does appear as though the sales that they're getting through uh, are sales that they're getting through without having to uh, discount their stock. So, you know, margins reasonably good. Uh, stock holding, they indicated that their stock on hand has decreased quite materially. So the working capital drag will be better as well. Hopefully that's not just because the stock was sitting in a container outside of the port of Durban. Uh, hopefully it means that they have been managing their stock a little bit better. Uh, but some positives, uh, despite the fact that the top line's looking fairly soggy.
Okay, then you know what the final question is, because the final question on a Wednesday night before a monetary policy committee decision is always the same question, Chris Stewart. This time uh, it is going to be worded slightly differently. Interest rate tomorrow, yes or no cut? Uh, no cut tomorrow. That's an easy one, Bruce. Excellent. Uh, that is doesn't simple, necessarily mean that cuts pretty, aren't on the card. I'm, I'm not quite as bearish as your yeah. your earlier commentary with regard to interest rate cuts and the potential. Therefore, I still think uh, by the middle of this year, we should be talking interest rate cuts cool. in South Africa. Uh, fairly encouraging inflation point that we saw today. It was an encouraging inflation point, but uh, the Reserve Bank Governor is a, is a cautious kind of guy. Uh, thank you very much, Chris Stewart, who's a portfolio manager at 91. One of his former colleagues, a man called Pete Fulyun, went out on his own probably 20 years ago. He'd been at what was Investic Asset Management before it became 91. And I see that he's our shapeshifter this evening. Pete Fulyun, half past seven. That's after Juliet Newell now with the very latest in Eyewitness News. Bruce Whitfield on Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Welcome to The Money Show, ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year in a row, proudly brings you The Money Show, ABSA is a registered FSP. We'll get to the Financial Sector Conduct Authority in just a moment and why it's ringing alarm bells around livestock wealth. Uh, but first, let me tell you what's coming up on your next money show. Narina Fisser, the strategist at ETFSA, will be head teacher in the investment school. Understanding dividends, so important. Pavlo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator with Small Business. Plus, of course, all the big money stories on the day, including not what the Reserve Bank Governor says, but how he says it and the signals he sends next time on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on K-Talk. Join the conversation. To Gerard van Deventer we go now, Head of Enforcement at the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. Gerard, thank you for coming on at short notice. We noticed today that you'd issued a statement warning the public against livestock wealth, a company that's been around since 2015 that does not claim to be regulated by the FSCA, but you've suddenly decided we should be careful of it. Explain the timing, please. It's curious. <laughs> Good evening, Bruce, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners. You've got a very interesting way of putting it, but I think you're right. Um, so what we have here is uh, two companies. We've got um, Livestock Financial Services. That's actually a registered financial services provider, um, and it's registered to conduct financial services with reference to insurance and um, uh, pension funds. So it's a very specific license, and that is how licenses work. It works in categories, and it's very important for the public to pay attention to those categories. Um, what has happened is um, we saw the website where um, livestock financial services and life, life, livestock wealth kind of advertises on the same website, and um, there's a little bit of confusion and rolling into one um, in terms of the offerings. And that's a big problem because that gray area that's created there is, is not acceptable. You can only do financial services businesses if you have the license and financial um, livestock wealth doesn't have any license with the FCA. 
So we are a bit concerned about that. And for that reason, we launched the investigation. We nearly completed and then we'll update the public. But in the meantime, it is important to be cautious because um, you should at all times only deal with authorized individuals and authorized entities uh, when why you it, give why your money. Why is it taking you nine years, though, to do this? It was founded in 2015. We're in 2024. Um, they've been very, very public. I've been to conferences where they've been fated and wined and dined and celebrated. CNN, BBC, everybody has gone, wow, this is virtual farming. You can uh, have your high-flying job in Santon and you can still have access to cattle. And it's a terribly powerful and emotive force for uh, for many people who, who come from Africa, of course. Why nine years after it starts, nine years after it explains its modus operandi to everybody, you give us money, we buy livestock, we host the livestock on other farmers' farms, and you know, if we make money, you get a little piece of it. Yeah, look, we only became aware of this confusion between the registered or the authorized entity and livestock wealth now or, or recently, and that's why we started the investigation um, I don't know if it was previously done under the registered entity. I have no idea. Um, but when we saw what was going on in the website, and it was also driven by uh, information provided to the FCA, uh, that's what we took took it up to to ensure okay. that we don't have a problem here. Okay. At this at this stage, you're warning and you're saying be careful because they're not registered properly with the FSCA. Is there any other reason to be cautious? I mean, they seem to be delivering returns. They seem to be making a profit for their shareholders, certainly by the public statements that they've made. But is there a concern in the way investor money has been treated that has also triggered an investigation? So, Bruce, um, I appreciate the question. Unfortunately, you you know what is our limitations on making information available. We have to finish the investigation before we can comment on that part of it. But I can say this much. Our investigation certainly includes an investigation into um, what has happened to the money, um, are the returns real, etc. So I, I can't comment on that right now, um, and I don't want that to be read in the wrong way. But by the time we finalize the investigation, we will have a complete picture of of are these real returns and um, um, where, what happened to the actual money. And what are your time frames on that? We are positive that we will be able to wrap this up in the next month. Thank you very much, Gerard van Deventer, Head of Enforcement at the FSCA. We have uh, tried to contact the people behind Livestock Wealth. They are yet to be responsive. Um, we will, of course, give them full right of reply. That's probably going to be next time on The Money Show. Um, I really, you know, one hopes that these things are not rotten to the core. Um, this FSCA clearly has got to be in its bonnet about this. And it's, to my mind, enough of a bee to say we need to we need to sniff around and it's still going to take a month so read into that what you like but um yeah so troubling times for the founders and the managers of livestock wealth have you got any concerns have you got money in there are you somebody who's blown the whistle to the financial sector conduct authority and you don't mind sharing the story curious give us a shout bruce whitfield on the money show 6 to 8 p.m Oh, my goodness me. Zapiro, Zapiro, Zapiro. Nowadays, of course, he's cartoons on Daily Maverick. 
I'll bring you up to speed with the latest cartoon, which channels Yertle the Turtle, one of the lesser-known Dr. Seuss books. Um, they're far better Dr. Seuss books, in my humble opinion. Uh, but uh, Iqbal the Turtle by Dr. Seuss is something that uh, we need to talk about coming up in a bit uh, when we've got a moment. But first, let's talk to Lindani Verzi. Lindani is an investment analyst at Future Growth. A lot of people are fed up, Lindani, in throwing good money after bad and the public sector. We've seen tens of billions go into the bottomless pits of ESCOM and SAA and countless parastatals. Now the latest one in trouble is Transnet. And people are going, you know, it's critical and without a high-functioning Transnet, it really cannot keep working. We need to bring private capital in and we know private capital is sniffing around the Durban port, etc., etc., etc. The last thing we want to do is take very scarce taxpayer money which the finance minister has got better things to do with, and throw it at Transnet. But you're suggesting that may be the best solution in the short term, at least, for Transnet's problems. Explain. Uh, good evening, Bruce, and to your listeners. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you captured it quite correctly. Uh, we are actually of the view that the guarantee framework actually is a short-term solution for Transnet in that It'll allow them to have access to the debt capital market where they can actually raise funding to actually solve for the short-term debt maturity. I think looking at March uh, 2024, there is not of 5 billion rand debt maturity. So in the absence of a government guarantee, it is... Lindan, you're speaking high finance and you're losing all of us. Um, You know what you're talking about. The rest of us think we know what you're talking about, but let's not second guess this. Um, What you're suggesting is that government does provide the guarantees that Transnet needs. It can either draw down on some money from government or not, but at least buys it some time to go into investment markets and look for pension funds and other investors who are willing to risk capital on the new management team at uh, at Transnet who may have a chance of turning this thing around. Have I, simpli- have I oversimplified it or explained it clearly? That is absolutely correct. Because the thing is, uh, in the short term, we, ne- we actually need the guarantee framework to actually allow Transnet to have access to money, institutional okay. money. Because what's happening at the moment is the balance sheet has gotten to ruins where it is not financially sustainable on a standalone basis. So you need this government guarantee to give it more credibility for it to actually go to the market and raise that additional capital. Because you as a pension fund manager, for example, Future Growth was asked, and you do invest in infrastructure. If you ask, please invest in, uh, lend Transit some money because we're in trouble. Without a government guarantee, you would be failing in your duty to pensioners, right? Because um, you'd be grossly irresponsible because it's unsustainable in its current structure. Without a sustainable structure, the any money you put in is likely to be doomed. Uh, that is correct. So in... in the, the guarantee will do absolutely that in that the capital at risk becomes lower because we now look for we look to the government for repayment rather than uh, transmit on a standalone basis. So what we further uh, further on say is that an, an actual capital injection would be much better because it will get transmitted to a more sustainable balance sheet. I think Fitch indicated that uh, circa 50 billion rand capital injection is likely to flow over the next two years, what that will do is it will actually reduce the debt service cost. It will then allow Transnet to focus on its key objects, 
objectives of actually executing its turnaround mm-hmm. strategy. But here's the thing, Linda, we've got to trust that the current management are not going to be usurped because we're told that they're quite good and that you know, the next government, when it comes in, doesn't go and put another bunch of crooks in charge of Transnet again and then pillage it once again because, you know, history tends to repeat itself unless you change the narrative and change the ability of crooks to, uh, to rob you blind. Absolutely, absolutely. I think as we get more credible management team, I think the one thing that we need to give credit to is the board chair as well as the interim management team. They've actually come in and improved stakeholder engagement. I think we have greater visibility of transit operations compared to the previous uh, administration. And what that does is it starts to build confidence in the investor community in that we sort of have better sight of what's actually happening Wonderful. Thank you, Lindani Verzi, who's an investment analyst at Future Growth. Quite technical, but important and ultimately interesting. Bruce Whitfield on Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Welcome to The Money Show, the uh, cartoon I was telling you about earlier on, the Zapiro cartoon in today's uh, Daily Maverick. It is a homage to Yertle the Turtle, which is a Dr. Seuss story. And the, the illustration which uh, Zapiro has done is of a whole bunch of turtles on top of each other. And those turtles are all teetering, of course. They've all got share price graphs around their necks. They're all sweating and straining. And it's all of the companies that connected to Iqbal survey. And uh, the text goes, and again, this is Dr. Seuss, remember, so it often sounds nonsensical, but it rhymes and it's rhythmical and it's fabulous. But these are the words of Zapiro paying his respects to Dr. Seuss. He crowed, I am Iqbal, king of all I survey, but all that he sat on was in deep decay. His tower of power was nigh the lurch. He lied, conned and swindled his way to his perch. Sabotage! shouted Iqbal as he entered free fall. The world's against me, the banks one and all. His last words we hear as he plummets, as he hollers, I'm suing the government for four billion dollars. Oh, it's just brilliant. If you don't um, regularly look out for the cartoons of Zapiro, you're really missing out. One of my great regrets is that I have not, ever since he started producing his annuals, collected one each and every single year. And I'm really sorry that I haven't done that because I think when you go and you pick them up, you can pick up any year from the last 20 and be absolutely clear that you will have a very good understanding of what happened in the political landscape that year. They really are an entertaining journal of record. Um, and Zapira has got a way of conveying big news stories. I was very fortunate to have a wonderful history teacher in my senior school years and then as it turned out when I went to university and majored in history her husband was the head of the department at Rhodes so it was terribly convenient um, I, I was well educated and at a family memorial service this um, lovely lady came up to me and said Bruce do you remember me and she was always so big and imposing, but age can, you know, can, can, can make people smaller. And there was my history teacher, my feisty, remarkable history teacher, Sue Hummel, who had taught us the wonders of political cartoons throughout the ages. And political cartooning sort of comes in in the age of Bismarck in, 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 in Germany. And political cartoons, well done, really encapsulate the mood of a nation, encapsulate the, the undercurrents of 
of what is really happening in a society often so much more than the text does because the text is sort of item by item by item by item and cartoonists are able if they're skilled as Zapiro is to encapsulate a whole litany of historical events time is almost irrelevant to them and i just love what he does on a regular basis on the daily maverick and um yeah it'll upset iqbal survey which you know you either care about or you don't but yeah the iqbal turtle iqbal the turtle by dr seuss today in uh, daily maverick is most certainly a thing of beauty coming up after eyewitness news rich mulholland who is a brie bra scott with lots of tattoos and is a public speaker and he delivers videos and he delivers content on the internet and he is uh, so confident yet and i i've always suspected this of him but he's finally confessed that he is an introvert what is an introvert we'll explain it all and talk about what an introvert is and just the hell that introverts go to when they have to deal with a world full of extroverts. That's all coming up after Eyewitness News. Business challenges rise, so do we. Because yeah, hey, kuningi. Luckily, Bidvest Bank is a bank built out of business. So, customizable services come naturally. And once we get to know you, your ambitions, and the seasons of your business, we can tailor the efficiencies and solutions that help. We all have a voice. Use yours. Call 021-446-0567. Join the conversation. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Wonderful to have you in our company. We've got Rich Mulholland standing by. He is the owner of Missing Link. Wendy Nola will join us uh, with our consumer feature. She, of course, is our consumer ninja. And then uh, fund manager Pete Fulyun will join us. He started his career as a lecturer at the University of Pretoria. Who knew? I didn't know that till today. I love the research. Thank you, producers. I love it when nerdy diplomats have fun as well. It's always good to watch. There was a story in the Guardian newspaper this morning saying a scientist from a country that where you can find tea being made with lukewarm water from the tap claims to have found a recipe for the perfect cuppa. You don't insult British people in their tea. The secret, according to Michelle Francel, who's a professor of chemistry at Bryn Mawr College, is a pinch of salt, an energetic squeezing of the tea bag. Also, the article goes on, settling the question that has troubled British tea drinkers and snobs for centuries, whether to put milk in first or not, Francel found that milk should be added after pouring the tea to reduce the chance of curdling. She also said it should be warmed. Where did she come from? Paris, I wonder. Anyway, also key to the perfect cuppa, the use of larger tea bags to allow the leaves to move around more, keeping them more in contact with the water. Further advice, there should surely be unnecessary for the most casual tea aficionados, is that both tea bags and loose leaves should be used only once. Now you can cue predictable outrage, because British people don't like to be told what to do at the best of times. And so you've seen social media feeds go mad today with people going, who is this mad American telling us how to make tea? Outrageous! But my favourite part of this story is an official statement from the United States Embassy. My favourite announcement today. Today's media reports of an American professor's recipe for the perfect cup of tea landed our special bond with the United Kingdom in hot water. 
Tea is the elixir of camaraderie, a sacred bond that unites our nations. We cannot stand idly by as an outrageous proposal threatens the very foundation of our special relationship. Therefore, we want to ensure the good people of the UK that the unthinkable notion of adding salt to Britain's national drink is not officially United States policy and never will be. Let us unite in our steeped solidarity and show the world that when it comes to tea, we stand as one. The U.S. Embassy will continue to make tea in the proper way by microwaving it. <laughs> ah, it's too good. It is too good. It is too good. You know what else is too good? Richmond Holland is too good. Business Unusual now brought to you by Bitbest Bank. Bitbest Bank, built for your business. The Money Show. Business Unusual. The most, the thing that most people find hard to believe about people such as myself and my guests this evening, as well as many others who perform in public, is that we are deep down actually introverts. I mean, as much as we are very comfortable in front of a microphone or on a stage in front of thousands, and, and we love it and we're energized by it, you put us into a room and you say, this is a wonderful networking opportunity, go and make some new friends. I don't know about you, Rich Mulholland, but I crumble. I, I die inside and I just go, I would rather have go to my dentist, give them a spade and saying, please bash my teeth out one at a time. I d it's just not an area where I'm comfortable. Bruce, I feel Bruce, exactly, I feel the, same exactly the same way. Uh, uh, in fact, I feel as, as horrific about that as I would feel about squeezing a tea bag and putting salt in it. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed by that. But it's my worst thing. Uh, a lot of time people used to think that I was uh, just being very offish or rude uh, when I have my earphones in and I'm walking around before a speaking gig. But it's because it fills me with so much dread, the idea of a crowd of people and walking up and engaging in conversation that I hide inside the safety of my earphones. <laughs> But it, it's that's why there's a backstage area at these events, because the vast majority of people who perform in public are not fit for public consumption one-on-one. -on -one. Um, is that fair? Yes. Uh, well, one-on-one, -on -one, I think I'm, I'm okay, and one-on-one, -on -one, we're, we're okay in those situations. But you're right. Uh, in a crowd, putting unleashing us and asking us to go up and make conversation, you know, we obviously train a lot of professional speakers and presenters, and it's it's amazing to me that there's an inverse correlation between uh, successful uh, uh, professional speakers and uh, how likely they are to want to go and engage with people in a crowd. Mm. Okay, so how do we deal with it? How do we cope with this thing? Because it's a massive constraint. I mean, you look at some distinctly average people who do amazingly well, simply because they actually like people. They like to go and put themselves out there. They like to go and they're curious about other people. They go and they find out things and they make conversation and they do the small talk. And what drives you and me up the wall is something with which they're perfectly comfortable, yet they find themselves, therefore, going into rooms that you and I might not get into. They find themselves in places getting opportunities that they possibly would not get if they were more introverted. Yeah, I completely agree, Bruce. You know, I've been to a lot of events where I've been to TED many times, for example, and there's, there's just an incredible network of people there. And I come home and I'm on the plane thinking, why did you not just go up and speak to people? Everybody else was doing it. Nobody would have minded. And uh, to answer your question, I was at an event last year and it was professional speakers and speaking bureaus uh, from, from, you know, around the world. And they were all, we were all together in Arizona. And I knew I had to network. There was like maybe five or six different opportunities for networking sessions. And the first time I thought, okay, I psyched myself up and I journaled and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And then I went back to my room and I'm like, okay, I was terrible. 
But slowly but surely, I started trying to be more analytical about it instead of just kind of going up and being emotional about it. And I realized all of a sudden that there was a pattern at play. And once I understood the pattern, I thought, oh, wow, this is incredible. Like, this is a, a very hackable thing. And I'll tell you, and I don't know if, you, if this is how you feel, but the problem for me is not speaking once we're in a conversation, although I don't love small talk, but the problem for me is initiating the conversation in the first place. I don't know if that resonates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Most no. certainly does. How do you start the conversation? I mean, you know, the books will tell you, and I've not read the books, but I've seen extracts from the books. They say, go and ask a question, an open-ended question. Hello, who are you? And then they say, well, I'm as public speaker. You say, no, no, I didn't ask what you do. I asked who you are. And that, that opens up the floodgates of people to talk about themselves. You've got to be careful with that one because that can take hours. But, you know, there are guidelines on how to do this. It doesn't make it fun or easy, though. Right. So, and the problem for me was, you know, the idea of going up to somebody and saying, you know, who are you? It just feels so strange. And I feel like I'm interrupting. So I sit and I see a whole bunch of people and I'm kind of scoping the room. And I looked and what I realized actually, and this kind of happened, I was having a conversation with this, this one speaker and we got to chatting that we both do jujitsu and he happens to be blind, absolutely hundred percent clinically blind. And we were having this fantastic conversation. All of a sudden, this guy came up and joined and said, oh, do you guys both do martial arts? And then we started chatting to him. And after a few minutes, you know, we were all chatting. And after a few minutes, uh, the blind guy, kind of, he, he rolled off and he was, uh, uh, you know, chatting to somebody else. And I was chatting to the, the person who joined. And then somebody else came and joined us. And when, when, I, when I journaled on it later, I realized I didn't mind at all when people interrupted me. And I saw that actually the interruption was a service. And this was the core thing. This is the core idea that I've been thinking about. There are three roles in a networking event, right? In a conversation. The one is the joiner, the person who has to come up and join. The one is the binder. This is the person who keeps the conversation flowing. And the other is the lever. And this is the person who has to, has to leave once things are going. And, you know, the mistake I always made when I would do these things is once I did get into a conversation, I never left. I would just sit there and I would hang on to that one person like a rash just because I felt safe there. And what I realized is that actually everybody wants to meet. Yeah, I know it's crazy. I mean, it was just like my safety net. No, it's normal. Wants... I'm sorry. I'm just relating. I'm relating. I'm relating. It's, uh, it feels Yeah, nice. totally, totally. <laughs> well, the, the thing for me was is that nobody wants to meet one person and have one conversation all night. Do they actually want to go? And what struck me is, is quite incredible was the new person joining the joiner gives the incumbent person permission to leave and once i saw this happening and once i understood i realized wow it's like interruption as a service by joining a group of people chatting and engaging with them it gives somebody the opportunity to break away and once I started seeing this, it made everything easier. And I, I didn't know what to say. So I opened up with a very, very simple line. Uh, I mean, it was, as, I mean, it's, it's ridiculously silly, but I just would walk up to a group of people at a net, and it was obviously a networking event. That's the context. I say, hi, my name is Richard. I'm from South Africa. Do you mind if I join you? And then of course they say yes. And then they'll carry on chatting and then we'll chat a little bit. And, and then the one person will roll off. And then a few minutes later, somebody would join. And then it's my job to roll off. And once I understood these roles, and once I understood that it was a dance, it actually reminds me of the Scottish dance. It's called Strip the Willow. And, you know, people dance a little second, and then they hand off their partners to the next person, and then they dance a wee bit more. And, then they, and so you're constantly changing partners. And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. 
And now it's changed everything for me because I no longer feel that sense of fear. By the end of the event, I didn't feel that fear walking up to people because I just understood that I was, I was just enrolling myself in the dance that everybody else was doing. It's a fabulous insight there, Rich, because so often you feel, well, I don't want to be rude. This other person who's joined in, they're having another conversation. I'm no longer part of this conversation. Uh, I want to go, but I can't go. But you should go because now you're intruding on their conversation, so it's fine to go. It's okay. And and coming to terms with that idea and stripping the willow, as you say, the Scottish dance, um, is a wonderful way of describing it. You did say something else, Richard. Maybe this is for another day. I psyched myself up and journaled. Uh, I've I've noticed on my latest iOS update, there's a new app for journaling. And I'm not a journaler. I'm a journalist, but I'm not a journaler. And it talks about getting into the habit of writing in a journal and setting a schedule to doing it and the discipline that it requires. Maybe next time, if you're available and you're not too shy to talk to me one-on-one, we could talk about journaling and the value of journaling and why one should journal if, if you're not a journalist. I would love that. And it's something that really, really has been a game changer for me and probably only in the last six months. So it would be certainly worthwhile to have a discussion okay. and, and around how I do it and how I go about it. You're right, though. It's still an effort. I still have to set time and put it in my diary as something I want to do. Rich Mulholland, the owner at Missing Link. Thank you very much for joining us. Rich Mulholland this evening. Anyone who's ever seen Rich on stage would be troubled by what he had to say this evening about being uh, an introvert because he doesn't present that way. But then people who do present in public are often very good actors. Very, very good actors. Uh, Let's talk in a moment to our consumer ninja. That's Wendy Nola. If you cancel a beneficiary on your policy and find out that they were never listed on your policy in the first place despite the fact that you pay premiums for their cover should you get a refund on those premiums i would think so is it difficult to get a refund on those premiums as it turns out yes it is that with wendy nola coming up next when business challenges rise, so do we. Because yahe kuningi. Luckily, Bitvest Bank is a bank built out of business. So, customizable services come naturally. And once we get to know you, your ambitions, and the seasons of your business, we can tailor the efficiencies and solutions that help turn your income into the outcome your business needs. Visit bitvestbank.co.za to learn more. Bitvest Bank, banking built for your business. An authorized FSP and registered credit provider. Wendy Nola with us this evening. It would be great frustration if you have been paying money into a policy for somebody you believe is covered. Uh, and it happened to somebody called VUCA, who took out an accident protection plan with Standard Bank Insurance Brokers in 2000. He paid a premium for himself and his wife for 22 years. And then his wife, Wendy Nola, died last year in March, and he had a nasty surprise. He did, Bruce. Hello. So he did the right thing. He went to update the policy and and asked for a reduction in the premium he was paying every month because it was just covering him now for that uh, uh, accidental death uh, uh, policy. And he was told that his wife was not named on the policy, only he was. So in his email to me, he said, I asked whether the policy would have paid out then had my wife died from an accident. 
And I was told, yes, she would have been. But he says he looked at the policy carefully, and in two separate places, it states that the spouse must be named on the policy for there to be a valid claim. So, naturally, he demanded that Standard Bank Insurance pay him back all the premiums that he had paid on behalf of his wife since the inception of the policy, more than 20 years. But they refused on the basis that she would have been covered. I'm not prepared to accept this refusal, refusal to pay, he said, because it's not based on anything uh, in the policy, and actually the policy wording goes against it. Uh, but he didn't get any help from the brokers or the bank's internal um, adjudication team. So, uh, and when his email started going unanswered, he emailed me for help. So I uh, took his case up with Standard Bank Insurance Brokers, and I said, the banker said it would have honoured a claim had the wife died of an accident, which is convenient because that never was and never could be put to the test. Policy wording would have entitled the bank to reject the claim and presumably refund the, the premiums at that point. So how is the refusal to refund the premiums justified now? So I was told after some time we are on contact with Vuga uh, uh, and working with him to resolve the matter. Uh, when I pressed for more information, I was told that's all they can tell me. So luckily, Vuga was more forthcoming. He said they had uh, told him that they would be repaying uh, his wife's portion of his monthly premium, which was 7,400 rand. So that was a win and also just a lesson to push back on these things, you know, that, I mean, he could have gone to, to the, um, insurance ombudsman and I'm quite sure there would have been the same result. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not good enough to say, well, we would have paid out. She was covered. I mean, how do you prove that <laughs> when the policy yeah. wording doesn't enable it? So yeah, it was quite an interesting case, I thought. Okay, so how then does it play out? I mean, what what are the rights and wrongs here? Well, he's saying um, he was paying for two people. The premium that he was paying covered himself and his wife, but she wasn't named on the policy. And the policy wording specifically says that the, the spouse must be named on the policy in order for a claim to be successful. So... He said when they when he said okay his wife didn't die of an accident but had she because that's what the, what the policy covered had she died of an accident would you have, would you have covered it and they said yes and he said well that's convenient as I did okay. because that can't be put to the test so pay me back my premiums and they said no and anyway um, happily they reconsidered and he got those premiums back matter of principle he said. No, no, absolutely right. And then there was another another claim that is interesting. Um, and can you insure against the weather if you've got a business? I know as farmers, you can insure against hail damage, for example, but you can't insure against drought. What is the case study there? I'm not sure about the insurance angle, but it this case is a, is a banking case and it was brought to my attention by Ross, who for the past 20 years has owned and run a small weather-dependent business in Cape Town, Simonstown to be exact. She says, I have an online booking and payment platform, and when I cancel a booking due to bad weather, the payment system refunds the client um, the client's credit card uh, that they used. And for the past 20 years, NetBank, which is a bank, has always covered the 3% bank charges. So they refund uh, the full amount to her, the, the actual amount plus their 3%, and she's then able 
to refund what the client paid. She says, but in October last year, we were informed that the bank would no longer pay back their commission. They now keep it. Due to the wins we had in Cape Town in, in, in December, I paid in about a thousand rand in bank commissions, which is a lot for a small business. Um, and of course, the bank precludes its vendors from passing on their bank charges to their customers, and rightly so. But this was an interesting other side of the coin thing for me. So I asked Nedbank what had prompted it to do an about turn on this commission issue and also to comment on the impact on its many particularly small business clients. And the response was, uh, when processing purchase and refund transactions, Nedbank incurs costs. While in recent years we've been, uh, we, well, all along we've been absorbing them, but in recent years these costs have been escalating due to increased compliance requirements, inflation, and enhanced risk management processes, right? Um, and so that led them to discontinue refunding that uh, merchant, merchant commission. And um, pointing out we've avoided this for many years, whereas the industry stopped refunding merchant service commission on these transactions many years ago. So my experience tells me, Bruce, that uh, I should rather check that. So I checked with a number of other banks. FNB said, yes, they've never they've never refunded the merchant uh, commission when they're cancellations. The merchant must just lose out. Ditto Standard Bank, same story. But I got an unexpected response from EPSA, which was, we pride ourselves in treating customers fairly. While banks do incur costs for the processing of transactions, EPSA, in good faith, also refunds the commission to also refunds the commission to the merchant when the merchant refunds the customer. And I thought, well, there you go. I thought many of the of business listeners, business owning listeners, especially small businesses, mm. might be um, quite happy to know that. So I share it in the public interest, no. Bruce. No wonder, it's absolutely wonderful, Wendy. Thank you, Wendy Nola, our consumer ninja, is with us, of course, every Wednesday evening, and she comes up with some wonderfully clear and surprising um, solutions for people. And if you are in small business and you are fighting with your bank about refunding you, that it's a small charge, but it is a charge that is cumulative, and particularly if your cash flow is impinged, because if you're weather dependent, I don't know what sort of business that the lady in Simonstown has, but let's say it's a kayaking business, um, and the waves are big and the swells are big and the water's too rough and it's dangerous to go out, well, you then are subject to the whims of nature, and you then have to say to your customers, terribly sorry, we can't go out today. They say, well, I'm boarding a plane tonight and I'm headed home. So it was a wonderful last-minute idea for us to, you know, go paddling around the bay in Simonstown and go and uh, look at all the beautiful scenery and go and see if we can find ourselves some dolphins, which you often do in that part of the world. It's not going to work out. Could we have our money back, please? You say, of course you can. You do the right thing. The banks, however, three out of four, no. Absolutely. Yes, they will do that. I think that's very encouraging. Thank you, Wendy Nola. Our Consumer Ninja, every Wednesday evening at about 20 past seven. Uh, we are told by the guys who run um, Livestock Wealth that they will join us um, on the radio tomorrow. They're issuing a statement in the morning in response to the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, which is warning the public against dealing with them. It looks like a technicality, but they've still got a month of investigating to go, implying that they are looking into other aspects of the livestock wealth business. But uh, Shezi has given us a message, and uh, we'll be in touch tomorrow and see whether or not we can get some clarity on it. Tonight's Shapeshifter actually hired tonight's market commentator at what was then 
Investec Asset Management. Uh, Chris Stewart dropped me a note uh, soon after he finished his market commentary this evening. He said, oh, yes, Pete Fulion, he hired me at Investec Asset Management. Then he left and he went into business on his own. He is a, a, a proponent of value investing. We'll talk to him about that. We'll talk to him about a whole bunch of stuff, actually. He's an interesting guy, is Pete Fulion, including his proclivities for mountain biking and wine. All of that still to come on The Money Show. But first, half past seven and time for the latest eyewitness news. Here's Juliet Newell. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Tonight's shapeshifter has been a fund manager for a long time. He is today executive director at Merchant West Investments. His name is Piet Fulyun. I learned this today. Piet Fulyun started his career as a lecturer at the University of Pretoria. He then joined the Reserve Bank as an economic analyst. Then he discovered value investing and... Uh, at Alan Gray, and then joined Investic Asset Management when Investic Asset Management was but a baby. He then hired Chris Stewart, our market commentator, on a Wednesday at some point, and then ended up leaving there and going to start up his own businesses. He's been in his own businesses. It's your 21st year. Happy coming of age, Pete Fulion. 21 years as running your own shops. Oh, it's been 21 fascinating years, uh, lots of ups and downs during that period, as you know, and that's how business goes. Uh, but it's been enjoyable. I, I've been fortunate enough to have uh, have enjoyed the partnership with two other people, uh, which has helped a lot during that period. Uh, so it, it's it's been fantastic. I've enjoyed every minute. We'll talk about partnerships and the power of partnerships and the importance of partnerships in, in a little while. But just first, just fill me in a little bit on the history, if you if you would. Um, what did you study and why did you go into becoming a lecturer as your first sort of port of call in the world of work? Um, I studied uh, in those days a, a degree called BCom Econometrics. It was basically um, uh, mathematics, statistics and economics, uh, basically to prepare me to do the actuarial exams. Uh, but while I was doing that course, I realized that I was too dumb to become an actuary. So I just finished my degree. Uh, but then I faced the prospect of having to go to the army for my compulsory two-year service. And then I looked for all sorts of avenues not to go to the army. And one of the available avenues was to become a lecturer, which I did. Okay. So that was a, a strategic decision. And from lecturer to the Reserve Bank, I mean, that's an interesting career choice as well because you're not somebody – from the bit I know about you, who easily fits into very top-down structures? No, I, I don't fit into those structures at all. Uh, again, um, in an attempt to stay out of the army, uh, I joined a semi-government institution, um, <laughs> okay. uh, which was the Reserve Bank, uh, which served me well for a couple of years. I learned a lot there. And, I, I, mean, I have to say, with really good people, I'm sure. I learned a lot it, because it is at the epicenter of an economy, isn't it? I mean, once you understand a central bank and you understand its role and you understand its function and you understand the inner workings of a place like that, the rest of the the puzzle of how the world works begins to fall into place, I think, a lot better. I, very much so. And I was fortunate enough to work at the Reserve Bank, uh, South African Reserve Bank, at a time when um, we, when the policy was one of financial repression, in other words, keeping uh, interest rates below the rate of inflation uh, and to inflate away the very high debt levels the government had run up in their uh, efforts to buttress the apartheid regime. Uh, so it was a fascinating period, and I think we are starting to go into another such a period in some of the 
uh, Western economies right now. Explain that to us, please, Pete, because it's an important thing to to understand. Because the Americans, in particular, with their thirty four, is it thirty five, was it thirty six? It's hard to tell day by day. Trillion dollar debt burden um, that would cripple most economies in the world. Yet it's something that they seem very, very comfortable in tolerating. This idea of inflating yourself out of debt. Explain to it, because that is what the Reserve Bank did in the days, sort of pre nineteen ninety four. When I was there in, in, in the 80s, that's exactly what they did. The, the debt-to-GDP level was very, very high. Lots of debt relative to the size of the economy. Debt-to-GDP was very high. So you can get out of that problem uh, in two ways, one of two ways. Either you can pay back the debt. In other words, tighten your belt, save a lot, and pay back the debt, which is very bad for growth. And, uh, you know, you have to tax more. And, uh, you know, people, and especially the politicians, don't like that because that is tough. It's not easy. Or you can take the easy option, uh, which is just to inflate your way. In other words, uh, GDP is uh, real GDP uh, times inflation. That's what GDP is. So if you inflate, if you have high inflation, you have high nominal rates of growth of GDP, which then again reduces the debt to GDP uh, relationship. Okay. And most, I would say, 100% of governments, politicians would choose that route and historically have chosen that route. Uh, and that's exactly what they did in South Africa in the 80s. And you do it in a couple of ways. The first thing is you tell all the institutions you have to have a certain percentage of your assets in government bonds. So you force them to buy your bonds, which keeps a ceiling on bond yields. In those days in South Africa, you had to have pension funds had to have 50% of the assets in government bonds by law. Uh, you apply capital control so that capital stays in the country and is then forced to buy bonds as well. And uh, and you regulate what banks can do and who they can lend to so that uh, you keep a lid on that. Uh, so there's all sorts of machinations that happen in a repression in order to get that debt to GDP level uh, down to manageable levels. Now, there's a logic to that, but it's it's a stifling logic, and it's not a logic with which I think you could have lived for very long. As a young analyst going into an environment like that where it's defying logic, you're constraining an economy, you're deliberately constraining yeah. an, an economy, you, you're limiting its capacity to grow. Uh, how did you how did you manage in that environment? Clearly not very well for very long, because then the next thing you went off to Alan Gray. Yeah, well, uh, look, at the time, I was very young and naive, and um, I didn't really understand the big picture very well at that point. Um, in the tea room at the Reserve Bank, um, you know, the senior Reserve Bank people would congratulate themselves on the successful execution of their monetary, pol- monetary and fiscal policy. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't think too much about it until um, I moved to the private sector, to Alan Gray, where I could see what the actual effect was on portfolio management, on the returns, uh, pensioners got on their investments. And I could see the real-world effect of these policies, the easy way out policies that politicians apply. That opened up my eyes. Uh, so very valuable lessons. You didn't spend that much time at Alan Gray before Hendrik Tutoy came knocking on your door. In 1995, you joined what was then Investec Asset Management. Today, it is 91. You spend, I think, eight years there. And that's where I think I first came across you as this very left of field thinker on markets and money and you developed yourself quite a nice profile within that investing asset management space but took the decision to go out and set 
up your own business and uh, you set up the regarding capital management business in 2003 and you went from security uh, from a fast growing hell of a dynamic um, asset management company into doing your own thing what was the catalyst for that well um, I was basically pushed into doing it by my uh, business partner Tennis the brand uh, he he dragged me kicking and screaming into into VCM at that time um, and I am, you know, with again with a bit of hindsight, I am very grateful to him for having done that. Um, it was probably the best decision I ever made. But at the time, I did it under duress, duress from his side. Uh, but it turned out to be good. And that's the strange thing, isn't it? Because here, you, effectively, you're going from one startup environment, and you've you've helped the startup environment of investing asset management. It was a fledgling business when you joined it, with massive global ambitions. And you go back into the startup environment. What was the focus of of ReCM in those days regarding capital management? What what was it that made it the right call to have made? Well, you know, I've always liked working in small businesses. When I joined Alan Gray in 1991, I think we were 30 people. Um, when I joined Investic Asset Management in, in 1995, I think there were 20 people. Um, so I've always enjoyed working small business. I think it's a lot more dynamic. Um, uh, your influence is more direct. Um, and it's just a much more exciting environment in which to work. As soon as a business becomes big, it has to become more bureaucratic. Uh, there are more um, restrictions imposed. Um, more bureaucracy, uh, more top-down controls, and that, um, you know, for somebody who has some sort of entrepreneurial spirit, uh, the way I think I, I have, um, that becomes a bit stifling afterward. So those are both great businesses, Alan Gray and uh, 91, or basic mm. asset management as it was at the time. Fantastic businesses, great people to work with. I mean, Hendrik de Toy is probably one of the best business leaders in South Africa, although he lives in London now, but out of South Africa. Uh, and I learned a hell of a lot from them. But for me personally, I prefer working in a much smaller environment. Well, certainly Hendrik has made a huge splash uh, in in the London investment community as well. I recall at the time of the King's yeah. coronation, there were top British business leaders invited to a room with Joe Biden and the King. And one of the people there was Hendrik de Toy. I mean, clearly he's, he's made a, a big impact in the UK, the, the UK too. Um, give me a sense of then this idea of partnerships. Because you go into partnership with Tinas de Brain, and then you go into a second mm-hmm. partnership later. Talk to me about partnerships and why, to your mind, that is the best way of going to the startup world? Look, every person has, has different strengths and weaknesses. And I think the earlier you realize what your own weaknesses are, the better for you. Um, I was fortunate enough to realize quite early on what mine were. Um, and at the time I started RCM, um, as I said, kicking and screaming. Um, uh, TNS helped me a lot with dotting the I's and crossing the T's because that's probably one of my weaknesses is the – you know, getting the admin exactly right all the time. Um, so that helped me a lot. And, and that's the strength of partnerships is, um, you know, one plus one, uh, if you have the right partner, adds up to multiples of two. Uh, and that's exactly what happened to us. Talking partnerships and the importance of partnerships with Pete Fulyun this evening, the fund manager. We're going to talk about value investing and what was the catalyst for his views on value investing. Sometimes controversial. Sometimes you can sit for a long time and not get the sort of returns that you and your investors would like. 
and then suddenly when the ship does come in, you look like a genius. But uh, sometimes uh, it can take a long time for that to happen. We'll talk to Peter about that and what rally investing is and how it's evolving in just a moment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on Cape Talk. Join the conversation. Investor Pete Fulun is with us this evening, our shapeshifter. This idea of value investing popularized worldwide by the likes of Warren Buffett and, uh, uh, of course, his, his late business partner, Charlie Munger. But it was the philosophy that you sort of would have picked up on at Alan Gray, and then you brought that into the investing asset management sort of uh, environment as well. And I think you've pursued it and continued to pursue it, even if it has evolved over time for the last 21 years. Yeah, I started picking up the threads of value management at Alan Gray, as as you know. At the time, they were very much a value house, um, and I started learning about it there. Um, uh, there were some great investors there from which I learned a lot. Uh, and when I left Alan Gray to join Investec um, as management or ninety one, um, they threw me into the deep end. They gave me uh, a bunch of portfolios to manage. And I wasn't at that point quite, uh, or my investment philosophy and process hadn't quite developed to the point where I could conf- confidently replicate it over time. So I did a lot of reading, I did a lot of soul searching, trying to understand uh, what makes me tick and what sort of investment makes me tick. Uh, and I came to value investing uh, and I started reading all the great books about value investing. Um, Ben Graham's book, and uh, I went to, in 1996, I think it was the first time I went to Omar to listen to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger speak, Mm. and that was sort of my indoctrination into the cult of value investing, if I can put it that way. Um, It was was a learning experience for me, Uh, and it uh, I, I found that how value investing works uh, sat very comfortably with my own psyche. And I think that's very important. Uh, that's a very important aspect mm. because if you're doing something that you're not comfortable with, you won't be able to do it consistently. And I think in investing, there are many ways to skin the cat. There's not only one way, uh, but you have to be consistent in that way you, you skin the cat. And you have to be able to be consistent sometimes for long periods of time where people are looking at you and going, Pete, Pete, the world has changed. This is a growth world. This is not a value world. You are missing out and you're watching growth stocks grow and to illogical levels and you've just got to let them grow and you've got to be able to take the brickbats and the criticisms, I suppose, which inevitably must follow in an environment where you're not making the stellar returns every single year, but you are waiting for pay dirt to hit occasionally or more occasionally. No, value investing is tough. Uh, it is the, the returns are quite lumpy. And it tends to have a pattern where for long periods of time, uh, one is underperforming your peer group. Um, and then there are short periods, short bursts, where you really do very, very, very well. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that most of the time you're underperforming. And only short periods are you outperforming. But if, if you put it all together, you outperform. The out, those albeit short periods of outperformance are so strong that you put it all together, yeah. uh, the numbers look fantastic. But psychologically, it's a very hard thing to do, to sit there for even years on end, um, you know, in the kitchen at the party when everybody else is dancing in the living room and having a good time. 
um, it, it, it's a tough thing. And that's why so few people can actually be value investors. And that is why, interesting enough, that value investing works because so few people can actually do it. Yeah. And have got the stomach for it and the time frames for it and don't have a boss shouting at them. They can look themselves in the mirror and shout, but that doesn't make a difference. Um, you have some fairly expensive personal habits. Um, you post them on social media. No secrets there. You do seem to spend quite a lot on mountain bikes. Um, and you do seem to spend an awful lot on I have huge wine envy when you post your wine images, or I think it's sort of Friday night, maybe a Saturday night occasionally. Um, you, you you display, you're not showing off, you display what it is you're drinking, and I just go, oh, my goodness me. Um, you, you don't you don't skimp on the good stuff, which is which is nice to it's see. It's the same bottle every time, Bruce. I just haul it out and put it up there. <laughs> you go to the box and fill it up. Yes, I'm sure you do. Um, but, but these are deep passions of yours, I think, I mean, because they're, they're, they've got so much to offer. Look, I mean, cycling for me is a form of uh, exercise and meditation. Uh, there's, for me, nothing better to get on my bike on my own and go for a long ride. Um, it, uh, it lends itself to uh, deep thinking, um, solitary thinking, which I think is important, uh, and also leads to a level of fitness, which is also important. I think if you want to invest, you need to be of clear mind and, uh, and a strong body. And, and I think cycling helps with that. Um, so, yes, I, I do own more than one bicycle. Um, and in terms of wine, you know, I regard wine as a, as a hard asset, a inflation uh, proof asset. Uh, and it's a win win situation. You know, if you, if the value of the wine doesn't go up, then you can always drink it. So, you know, there's, there's no downside to it. So, it's more but, of an do you actually collect wine? I mean, I mean, do you see do. it as an investment, really, or are you simply just uh, ripping the Very ring out? So, so I, South African I, wine is not seen as investable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have. I, I started on this wine journey about six or seven years ago, um, and I actually, you know, the way I am, I have a spreadsheet uh, documenting all the wine I have, uh, <laughs> the price I paid for them, the price that I've uh, achieved on auction uh, over time, um, and. Um, uh, and uh, I've sold some at auction as well, and um, they actually uh, do generate uh, quite a nice return. Uh, so, yes, I, I see it as a collectible or investable asset with no downside because if it doesn't do well on auction and you don't sell it, you can drink it. And then you have to drink it. At least there's a, there's a, that's the ultimate, I guess, in drunk for drink, isn't it? I mean, it's that thing of, I've lost money on this wine. What a pity, but it's gorgeous and it's perfect. And hey, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, better, it's, it's better than a cryptocurrency. You know, you lose money on a crypto. What are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pete Fulhoun, wonderful wisdom and insights this evening. Thank you for chatting to us tonight. Pete Fulhoun, the fund manager, executive director at Merchant West Investments. Pete Fulhoun on partnerships, on wine, on bicycles, and on value investing on The Money Show.